Thanks so much for joining us on Sling Talks. Joining us today is Donato. Donato is a machine learning engineer specializing in NLP and LLMs. He writes articles for Towards Data Science and for his Substack text generation. So check those out. Donato is joining us today to talk about RAG and the future of RAG, what might replace RAG in the future. Donato, do you want to just jump in and tell us first what is retrieval augmented generation? Yeah, sure. So RAG means retrieval augmented generation, and it's a method to add some external knowledge to LLMs. Because sometimes when we want to ask a prompt to the LLM, we need some information that is not containing its internal knowledge. So in this case, we might need to retrieve some external knowledge in the inference time. That's why we use RAG. How RAG works is that we retrieve some information, either through a vector database or through some external API based on the needs. This external information is put into the LLM context and is used for generating a response. And the response will be called augmented because it's augmented by the new information that we have retrieved. So I guess, I mean, RAG has been like the hype for a really long time. And I find it kind of silly because it's like, sounds like it's a big deal. And all it literally means is retrieve some information and pass it into a model. But I mean, like, is it a big deal or is it just like a little hack? What do you think? I think it's a really big deal right now. It's a technology like it exploded in the last few months. I think the term RAG was not even a thing before August last year. And then everyone started talking about RAG all of a sudden. But it was done before last year, right? I mean, like it was it was a thing since GPT-3, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, of course, like vector database were not invented the last year. They've been around for a while. But I think this term, specifically RAG, became popular a few months ago. And RAG is really necessary right now because LLMs have limited information about the world. So it's necessary also because they have a limited context. So without RAG, we might be incurring to very big costs about the inference, specifically because like in OpenAI, you pay for each token. And if we want to ask a question on a very long document, we'll pay a lot to process these tokens. And this is the first reason why we use RAG, because LLMs are not scaling well with the input sites. Like the more tokens we add to the input, the more computing power we need to elaborate the request. And that would be because of the attempt. So wait, let's just jump back a sec. When I use personally ChatGPT, I use it the same way as I think most people in asking questions like, what's the population of the US, right? And if you ask ChatGPT 100 times, you'll get 100 different answers. But roughly, it'll say something like, oh, it's somewhere in the three to 400 million range, or it's like 325-ish, or you know, last I checked in 2022, it was 310. I don't know what it'll say exactly. It might also hallucinate and just choose a different number. But almost all the time, it'll give you an approximately correct answer. Obviously, that means that LLMs do encode a ton of information. Do we really need RAG like, to encode information? Why can't we just like use the model, the stuff encoded into the model already? The problem about that is that we cannot peek into the model like they're kind of black boxes. As you said, they might be very unreliable. The input might change. So if we ground them in uh, some external knowledge, the input becomes more consistent instead of like changing every time or hallucinations. And this is also another reason why we use RAG to avoid hallucinations, to avoid answers that might be outdated. What I wonder is just like how often you're talking about like talking to a contract, you know, talking to a document, like how often when you're doing RAG, do you actually care about the generation versus just the retrieval? Like if I just went on Google and typed in the actual retrieval question and I just got the article and just got the quote, is that enough? Or like, why do I actually care at all about the generation? That's a very important point that you you brought up. Sometimes you just need a summary of the retrieved content. Sometimes you don't even need that. Sometimes you just 
are interested about in the retrieval content itself. So yeah, I also agree sometimes it's overused. Rag in some use cases, it's not really needed. The generation shouldn't be a mere summary. Like it, it might be another generation should make you save, save some time. For example, you retrieve a lot of documents and you want to find an answer on a huge number of documents. Then the generation might be useful. But uh, I agree with you that if it's uh, just a summary, we might as well just use a search engine. I mean, can you just give me like an example of a case where RAG matters? So an example would be when you have a big knowledge base, for example, looking into a project for a company that was retrieving, like transcribing all their conversations over their meetings, and you want to find what a person has said about something, and you want to ask a question on that. In that case, you can retrieve the relevant information. Maybe there are a huge number of conversations and you want a good summary about that. So in this case, it can be useful. And yeah, there are many use cases. I mean, like, so I have a bunch of transcripts of conversations I've had. And then what would it be like? I'm thinking, I remember I talked about X topic. What was that about? Yeah, something like that. Or another use case that I like for RAG is retrieving the um, functions that you need to generate some code, for example, for code generation. Like if you want to add an external knowledge about for generating some code on a library that LLM doesn't know, you retrieve the knowledge that the LLM needs to generate that code and you generate it. This way I think is very useful. Yeah, that so that one makes a ton of sense to me. So like Copilot does this, GitHub, so Codex is right, like the model that under the hood generates code from OpenAI, but GitHub Copilot does some element of retrieval. I don't even think they use RAG. I think they just literally look at like recent tabs open or something. But they use some algorithm to decide what context to pass in, and that lets the model write really awesome code because it'll match the style of the other code from the same library. It'll reuse functions that are relevant. So that's nice. You know, that's actually a really good use case where generation benefits from having context. But what I wonder is like, is that really brag or is that just like passing in context? Because I can also imagine like, you know, let's say Notion has their like right click context menu with AI. You can imagine any app having that, right? You know, yeah. you pass in the current time of day, you pass in what tabs I have open. Is that really RAG? Like, it depends because if the retrieved uh, information is too much to fit into the context, we might benefit from RAG. Also from a point of cost optimization because we only retrieve the chunks that are really relevant instead of fitting everything in the context. And this was the point that we were saying maybe the end of RAG comes when we'll be able to fit everything in the context window. Right now, we cannot force it. But let's go through, we come to the large context window, but like take the example of code, right? I want context so the model can output the correct result. In that context, if there's a helper function that's going to be called, ideally I want that helper function in the context, right? But the problem is there's if we are using like semantic similarity to decide what to include. So basically we want the model to see related text. There's no way the model is going to pick up the helper function, right? Like does rag actually work for that code generation use case or does rag, you know, is it more of a pipe dream? Yeah, there are some issues. What you mentioned, I don't know if it can be solved by uh, just cosine similarity. I don't think so. Maybe it's about extracting the name of the function that you need and then retrieving them through through some search. Like it's not the only way to retrieve by cosine similarity. We can not only retrieve from a database, we can also retrieve through some APIs. For example, another uh, use case that I liked is the one. Uh, there is an API basically that serves a search engine by a company named Tavili, and basically they they offer a API that retrieves results from the web, kind of like a search engine, and gives you the re-ranked results. And uh, in this case, I think it's also useful to, there's another form of retrieval that is not from a knowledge base. So is that like keyword based or like, is that agentic or is that still RAG? Yeah, it's kind of agentic. They have some AIs that are able to filter and re-rank the results. I'm 
didn't look into it in the details of it. So can we just define the difference between agentic flows and like rag flows? Yeah, a rag flow will be the steps that we define. So the first step is to retrieve and then we put the retrieve context in the prompt and then we generate. An agentic flow is something that can take some decisions or some actions that are additional with regards to the gener- to retrieval or the, the generation. For example, you can decide to call some functions or to have some thoughts or observation. This is the, uh, the idea behind the agents that and you can look into it just in the paper called React. And they show that the LLMs can alternate some phases of like thought, observation and action to uh, reach a result. And what I was mentioning before about the search engine API is also used in the agent project called GPT Researcher. And basically, uh, an agent that can research on the web and compile like a research report. And it's, yeah, that will be more an agentic flow. See, like, I think that's super cool. So imagine like I go to some AI that's either agentic or it's rag flow. And I say something like, do you think Google stock is going to go up or down next week? And, you know, I go to the rag one, the rag one goes through some like context and it finds related sentences. And so someone once said, you know, I think, or like, I don't know, Google went up last week. Or, you know, I think Google's going to go up next week, you know, and it's probably trying to get semantic similarity. What it's not going to find in semantic similarity is like, here's an analysis of how Google's doing as a company more generally. Here's historical performance. Here's how the stock market's like, because none of that is semantically similar. The agent could say, what are some comparable companies? How are those companies doing? What is Google working on right now? How likely are those technologies to succeed? And you might break it into like this giant tree of information that theoretically the agent could do, but like the rag one, it might actually get you an answer, but it's kind of probably going to be even more bullshit than just retrieving and just telling you what the answer online was, right? Best case, it says, I looked it up, I found five predictions, three of them were yes, two were no. And that would be like a huge win. But even that's a bit of a stretch. What do you think? I agree on that. I, I, um, I think that rag uh, is uh, an addition to the generation from the LLM while uh, agents are very advanced applications that are something that is beyond the use case of our single generation. So the rag architecture can be complicated, it can be very different, and but it's uh, something that involves retrieving and generating something and doesn't go beyond that. So in, in your example, you will be more interested in uh, more gathering information than taking action and having someone telling you you should do that. And maybe that's also a use case for an agent, which I agree with you. Then I think is the next big thing of AI this year, and is I wrote some something on that. And I think agents are are huge right now, and uh, they are one of the most popular repos on GitHub, you know, like Autogen for Microsoft is a very huge one and they're very, very popular right now. Yeah, it's still a little sci-fi, but yeah, just for that context, I guess you and I met because I read your post about RAG. All right, I'll let you talk about it. So your pitch, what was your argument about RAG? So my argument was that in a few years, we might mm, change, uh, the RAG might change uh, substantially as we know it. Because right now, as we discussed, RAG is really necessary also as a workaround because of the limited context wind of LLMs. So if we want to retrieve a lot of documents, we place them in the context. And this is also for avoiding to put the whole document themselves in the context. This might change in the future. What I mean is that we might get LLMs with the virtual limited context windows. And the bigger the context window, the more document we can fit. And in your example about code generation that we talked about, if you have an unlimited context, you can just fit the whole documentation of every package you use in your project. And you don't care about that because your context window, it just fits everything. So I think that having a huge context window might replace RAG in a lot of use cases. I think there will be more use cases for RAG uh, especially the API ones, uh, but retrieving for a knowledge base, I think that might be replaced from LLMs with very big context windows. And if you think about it, we are making... Just basically teach the model 
the whole, I mean, how does this make sense? Let's just try to imagine for a minute. How could you imagine you have a knowledge base? Like, you know, at Slingshot, we have a Notion. I actually was with Ivan at Notion last week and he got us on their RAG product, their like Q&A product. And I think it's honestly one of the best RAG products out there. Like, I think it's phenomenal, but it still occasionally feels like a solution searching for a problem. So I guess I'm curious, like, how would you imagine you could just stop, could we stuff like an entire Notion into one context window and then just ask questions that way? Uh, right now, it wouldn't be very feasible because of the increasing complexity of the input size of LLM. So basically, uh, you will spend a lot of tokens uh, OpenAI by doing that. So RAG and service are cost optimization right now. Also, even if it was 200,000 tokens, like my Notion's nowhere, is like way above 200,000 tokens, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, notions can be very, very big as uh, a lot of pages and a whole knowledge base, uh, especially like it cannot fit in uh, the GPTs that we have now. Even the new one, GPT-4 Turbo, has 128,000 tokens. Like Claude got uh, to 200,000, but we don't have the capacity to fit a whole knowledge base in a context right now. But this might change in the future because... Even now, there are some models, some architecture that are coming out that are aiming to replace transformers. For example, there are RWKV models. Like there's a one that came out last day uh, called Eagle, 7 billion parameters model that is attention-free, so it has no attention operation. And if you think about it in the last year, there have been so many speed-ups for attention and LLMs that it's reasonable to think that in the next few years, uh, this uh, situation might improve substantially. Uh, like just a year ago, like January 2023, like mm, GPT-4 is, was coming out, I, I think it was around January or February. And it was the first iteration of GPT-4 at like 8,000 tokens as context window. And now we are at 200,000 with Cloud2. And there are some LLMs, like open source LLMs, that also are up to 128,000, something like this. So uh, the context window is expanding very rapidly, and we are getting to huge context window in just a year. And who knows what can happen in another one or two years. We might get to millions or more. Yeah. So wait, let's talk through. So RWKV was crazy cool, and I think everyone in the world of AI was obsessed with it. If I understood, like they, I want to like talk through what it means to not have an attention mechanism. But if I understood, I think they reached something like a million context window while still improving, right? Like model still doing a better job up to, I think it was a million ish context window. How do you do it? It's an architecture that can virtually scale to a limited context window, but you still have the problem of training it to this uh, sequence length. And they made some tests. I don't remember exactly the paper with testes mentions, but the performance is degrading up to a certain point after a certain uh, context length as well. So they managed to fix the problem with the complexity operation of attention. But of course, there are some challenges around that. You cannot build unlimited context window models without attention because these kind of models are based on uh, RNN architecture. So they are more vulnerable to phenomena like hallucination snowballing or just uh, how is it called when you forget like long-term dependencies. There are some challenges about that, like attention. Oh, sorry, I was just taking a look. I was wrong, by the way, on their context window. I think it was just experimental at the time. It was a lot shorter. But for the new one, can you tell me about Eagle? I actually haven't read it yet. i just seen that it came out and it's beating some llama in some multilingual benchmark. I haven't tried it yet, but I cannot make claims on benchmark. It's another thing that we shouldn't trust benchmarks right now because we don't know how they are so I advise always for doing independent testing of LLMs. Just pick an LLM, try it on your own tasks and see if you like it. That's my main evaluation right now. So in a nutshell, basically what's powerful about 
transformers and about attention mechanism is that a model can pay attention to any part of the document, right? So if I have a giant knowledge base or an entire book and I want to incorporate it, the model can, while it's running, pay attention to any bit of the entire context because it pays attention to the whole thing and throws away all the attention that it doesn't need, essentially. That's incredibly inefficient, but pretty powerful. How would that work with linear scaling? Like, does it just mean that you forget a lot? Like, how could the model possibly incorporate all the data if it's scaling linearly? Like, how could it pay attention to the whole thing? Yeah, so let's talk about the original attention from the paper attention resource you need. It's basically a matrix multiplication. It has n squared complexity. So the purpose of this operation is to relate parts that are far apart in the text. So ideally, given a, a token, you need to generate the next one based on the previous ones. So this is the autoregressive mechanism of transformers of LLMs. And in this case, the attention operation originally had a n squared complexity, so it's very regardless with regard to the input size. So the more we increase the input size, the more the time increased for the computation of this matrix increases, like it's quadratic. But over time, there came some optimizations. There are many attention speed-up methods, the most popular being flash attention. So flash attention is a way to speed up attention by making it hardware aware. It means that some of these matrices are moved on the GPU cache and in this way the operation is sped up. And this is an exact attention method, meaning that it's not approximating the operation, but it's exact. So it's recreating the exact matrix. And then came out flash attention 2, which is an optimization on that. And this Flash Attention 2 is now implemented in most libraries and it's really a huge speed up. And right now we can get to like hundreds of tokens per second for small models, which is a lot more than before. Because I I actually tried to fit a, it was a Yarn 128K model without Flash Attention. It was totally unusable because the first token would be generated after minutes. But to be clear, you're talking about an inference time, right? Like you're saying at inference time, we're able to do the speed up. Whereas, I mean, because if I understand essentially, the reason why transformers are great is that it's really efficient to train on. Because if you were training an RNN and you have a thousand tokens, you have to take a thousand steps to train the whole thing, right? Like just to go through that one sequence, you first basically have to do a forward pass from one to two, two to three, three to four, up to a thousand, and then a backwards pass actually all the way back to one. And that's the only way to learn, as opposed to with the transformer, where you do all those steps in parallel. So instead of doing 2,000 steps, you do a million steps, but there are a million steps in parallel instead of a million steps in sequence. At inference time, on the other hand, with a transformer, you still have to do each one of those steps anyway. So if you're generating a thousand tokens, it's still O of a thousand, so it's basically transformers are awesome for training time. They suck at inference time. And the goal here is basically forgetting about training. Like how can we make training efficient enough that we can create really good models, but then get something that at inference time doesn't suck? Exactly. You put it well. Yeah, this is the problem because it might take up two minutes to generate the first token because when you generate the first token, you need first to compute the attention matrix. And this is a huge problem to generate this matrix. And there are also other methods, like the, there are methods to approximate attention, like sliding window attention, or sparse attention, or local attention. But these these methods have the problem of decreasing the accuracy uh, of this operation. So, but I also want to be clear: you are talking about bringing up throughput, not bringing up 
latency right now. Meaning like right now, GPT-4 has really low latency, even on giant context windows, because they just parallelize across a ton of machines. You're basically saying, if I want to run it on my computer, or if I have a ton of machines, I can now have maybe millions of times more throughput. So like millions of times more requests over one unit of time. So instead of having a million machines to do one request, we have a million machines to do a million requests. But each one at the end of the day, like it's not like the latency actually changes, right? Yeah, it depends on the scaling of the infrastructure because you need a fixed amount of compute to generate a number of tokens. And if you can reduce this amount of compute, you reduce the costs as well. So that that's what's the idea behind a limited context window. But if, again, if we're being real, GPT-4 costs for a thousand input tokens and a thousand output tokens. GPT-4 Turbo cost three cents. Three cents for a thousand. If you're doing a thousand input and one output, which let's say was a classification task, that's one cent. That means if you went through and you wanted to do like topic classification of articles that were each a thousand tokens, you could go through a hundred thousand tokens for a thousand dollars. So like how much of a concern is cost really? I'm just putting it in front of you. It's actually a big concern for GPT-4 because if you see compared to GPT-3.5, I think it's like 20 times the cost. So right now we want to limit the number of tokens that we are using. And as you said, the input tokens are less expensive, but they are expensive anyway, like one cent per 1,000, meaning that if you want to send a prompt with uh, 1 million tokens, like if you want to use 1 million tokens, you have to pay $1 and this can add up very fast depending on your use case. Maybe, but I, I mean, I guess that's part I, what you're talking about, I guess, is like if you are trying to take an agentic use case, if you're trying to use a lot of compute and like part of the limitation is with GPT-4, if you're doing a single forward pass, it is pretty cheap. But if you're trying to do a bunch of heavy compute, then you can't. Like if you're actually trying to run 100 requests to answer a single request, that's a dollar or that's a minimum of a dollar for a single request. You better do a good job. If you're trying to do 10,000 inferences just to answer a single request, now it becomes infeasible if you're using some... Okay, but then jumping to the other topic here, which wasn't just about saving money, it was about having infinitely scaling models, right? Like what, what's really exciting here would be what if to learn a new topic, to learn medicine, instead of passing in medical textbooks in your prompt, you had a model that did a forward pass through the entire every medical textbook ever written to learn it. Like what if you could learn through forward passes rather than learning through backwards passes? Isn't that like basically the promise of RWKV? Yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, I mean, learning at the inference time basically uh, is something that will unlock so many use cases. Another one would be like a virtually unlimited memory for like long-term memory for agents. Like you can access the previous thoughts, the previous observation. And if you can like dots can adapt and the models can learn by doing so we're i think solving this challenge can give us so many capabilities to 12 lms right now and this is one of the main limitations actually the the size of the context window and the increasing cost that comes with it so i think there's something really interesting to be said here because to me like rag really looks a little silly when you are talking about these kinds of topics but you know, the benefit is always just going to be about learning at inference time, right? So I think this is like my framing. I want you to push back on me if you think it's dumb. But I think basically, when you think about organisms like humans, we can learn in essentially two ways. We can learn through essentially evolutionary history, which I think is quite analogous to backpropagation. So basically, like we have instincts, right? We have the ability to acquire language. We have There are a lot of things humans can do that we're actually like born with. Actually, like we have reflexes. If you like you know, touch a baby's foot in a certain way or their hand, they'll like grab when you grab their hand. Anyway, and those are things we learned evolutionarily over the course of thousands and millions of years. And then there's like the English language, which I speak fluently and you do too, that, you know, both of us learned 
essentially at inference time, right? We learn it while we're running. We're not learning it over the course of an evolutionary scale. We're not getting feedback to learn it. We're learning it by saying it. You speak English, you hear English, you learn it by doing. And so kind of the framing in my head is like, we have this weird world of machine learning, where in machine learning, it was always about learning at essentially this evolutionary timescale. You learn really slowly from a ton of data from getting that feedback. In the case of like evolution, you get feedback by like dying. In the case of LLMs, you get feedback in gradients. But regardless, like GPT-4 knows a bunch about the history of the universe and it learned it all through this heavy process of backpropagation. Now we're talking about this magic new frontier of like, what if you actually could learn from forward propagation? Does this just unlock everything? Does this mean like you want to learn how to, you know, as an agent do video editing? Screw backpropagation. No need. There's no evolutionary element to it. We're just going to have a model, literally just have like a ton of context on how to do video editing. And it could be like, you know, billion tokens for all we care, as long as we can like make this feasible and then have the model actually learn new activities at inference time. What do you think? Do you think we can actually grow out of the age of backpropagation into the age of forward propagation for learning? Absolutely. And uh, I wanted to add something on the on the analogy that you made between learning in humans and learning in uh, deep learning models. So the main difference, in my opinion, is that in deep learning models, we cannot separate well where is the knowledge and where is like the mental abilities of the model, let's say. Because if you're learning another language, like I'm learning another language or you want to learn something new as humans, like we are doing it because we have some language abilities, some reasoning abilities that are allow us to generalize to new stuff. That's also connected to what we were saying before about adding knowledge. So this would be very cool, in my opinion, to find a way to separate like knowledge and uh, reasoning abilities in LLMs. Because if you think about it, about the quantity of information that we are absorbing in our lives, like let's talk about how much uh, data you need to train an LLM. Like data sets are up to trillions of tokens. And I know that the entire Google Books library is about 500 billion tokens. So that will be like six times for, for that to train a medium-sized LLM. And if you think about it, that's way more than a human can read in his lifetime. Yeah, but... Yeah, but a human can actually learn more advanced skills with less data. That's the point. And you, you can use these skills. But I think that doesn't count the evolutionary... Like how many tokens did we encounter to learn language? Probably was easily trillions when you count literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of humans, so probably millions of years of language. I mean, millions of years of language, I assume means trillions of tokens, you know? Yeah, that might be our like core reasoning abilities that we have as humans. And then adding external knowledge builds up on that. Like these abilities are allowing us to learn and add new knowledge, like dynamically, let's say in inference time, it will be like through our day. But we also, we do learn abilities at inference time too. Like I think part of actually what's nice about RAG is that in a RAG world, you perfectly separate knowledge and abilities. Because you're like, look, the model's ability involves this like retrieval element and the generation element, but the actual knowledge is going to be stored separately and we know it's true and we can cite sources. What's awkward here is that if you actually learned at inference time, you would see it's something a lot closer to me asking GPT how many people are in America and just getting an answer without RAG. Like you would probably have less clarity, not more clarity about the separation between knowledge and abilities, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's also another problem is the trade-off between like generalization and memorization. Because when you ask a difficult problem to GPT and GPT gives you the right answer with the right reasoning steps, did it really give you its logic or did it just learned in it was in its training data? And an example of that was like uh, an image that was going around. I found it on LinkedIn. Uh, was basically an, a prompt, like an image prompt. There were some chihuahuas and blueberries with some matrix of chihuahuas and blueberries images. 
and they look very similar. And that I'm sure would fool any object detection models that we have will create out false positives. But GPT classified it perfectly. But in this case, is it because it memorized it and it was in its training data or is a new ability that it learned? And it's not easy to separate these two things at the moment. I feel like on, if you're talking about evals, you're saying like, if you want to do fair evals between models, you have to make sure the model didn't memorize the benchmark data. Totally agree. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, like, in terms of usage, I don't super care, right? Like, because if you're talking about like a medical textbook and you say, did the model just memorize the medical textbook or is it reasoning? I mean, I just care if it gets diagnoses right. Like, I do want to know that you're not cheating and you're saying like, oh, it sucks in reality, but it's really good on the training data. Yeah, that's meaningless. But if it works, it works, right? Yeah, it depends because you can work on the test that you're doing right now. But maybe next year, if you're interested in new medical tests that are coming out next year, it might not be as good. So in this case, we need to add more knowledge. But again, you're talking about learning you're still talking about learning from backpropagation, right? Yeah. <laughs> in a world of learning from forward propagation, you'd be like, oh, there's a new medical information, new papers, just feed it into the model in a forward pass, and that's it. Exactly. But With an infinite context, I mean... In this case, you will need a model that can actually generalize to new tests, because if you don't have the answer to the tests, the model should provide you the right reasoning steps to get to the answer. And these reasoning steps should be generalized from a corpus of document that it learned at training time and then uh, apply to new ones, so generalization. So are you questioning if GPT-4 generalizes at all? No, I'm not saying it doesn't. I think it does pretty well on some tasks, but I... Um, I think for certain cases, it's difficult to understand if the, this is a result of memorization or generalization. And this is also the problem with benchmarks right now. Well, I mean, you can test it yourself. I don't know about you, but like if you take GPT-4, like take the ChatGPT app, and then you like write a math problem on paper and take a picture of it, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I was saying in general, like artificial intelligence moving forward involves like focusing more on generalization rather than memorization, in my opinion. I hear that. I mean, I'm just, if we're talking about RAG, then it seems to me like, I don't know. Have you read the forward forward paper? Yeah, the new algorithm by by Hilton. Yeah, it was, I mean, about a year ago, I think, but it was, and I don't think, I don't know if it went anywhere, but it was so cool because the whole thing was, what if models just learned at inference time? Like, what if they only learned from forward passes, never learned from backwards passes? Yeah, no, no backpropagation. Because um, there's no, like, humans don't backpropagate, right? Like, back, that's kind of why I'm making the evolutionary analogy. There's, I mean, maybe we do some sort of like cleanup while we sleep, but like, it seems like we learn a lot without anything analogous to backpropagation. So maybe there's this dream world, and maybe I'm living in a dream world here, but it would really be, let me put it like this. When I use ChatGPT personally, I turn off the Bing search capability, or I ask the model in my prompt, like, please don't search this. Because when it searches, the answers are shit. Like, they are so much worse. They're factually correct, but it doesn't answer my question. I ask something like, I don't know, how much bigger is Italy than the US or something like that? And then it'll like search some information and it'll tell me, you know, like some facts. But I, what I wanted to say is like, I wanted to reason step by step, right? Identify what the meaning of those could be, use some approximations, give me some generalizations. I don't want it to say it's, you know, 42.6 times the size. I just want to say it's like 40 ish, right? Like I'm okay with the approximation. I'm okay with it not being perfectly correct. I'm okay with it acknowledging that. What I don't want is for it to get paralyzed because it's trying to find the information. It can't cite a good enough source. And so it just doesn't answer. And if I ask it, like, will Google go up next week? It can do like proper analysis, way better if it can like talk through the information than if it just searches for an answer. So anyway, long story short, personally, I don't like when it searches. And now we're getting into this really interesting realm of like, is RAG the coolest thing since sliced bread because it changes the world, lets models ground their information? Or is it this temporary garbage thing because people are so worried about hallucination when really the future is models that never RAG, they might look things up when they need to, but otherwise they just 
learn through forward passes, and every day they have their knowledge about the universe updated. Yeah, that was basically my point. Uh, moving forward with AI, I think if you build some more advanced model, RAG is going to almost disappear. I believe there are some use cases, like retrieving from API is one. Like if you can put everything that you have in your Notion, for example, in the context window, but if you want to retrieve some information that's dynamically changing through some API, for example, some search on uh, on some recent news, let's say, that will be something that's changing over time. So you retrieve it through the API, but you can place it anywhere in the consensus window. So yeah, I believe that RAG right now is necessary because of the current technology limitation. But it's something for, for sure we can overcome. Yeah, awesome. All right, we're very much on the same page. I think there's also, the, even the retrieval from API thing, it sounds like an agentic flow is going to make way more sense for that than RAG, no? Uh, especially also because uh, sometimes you're just interested in receiving the information. So if you just want to retrieve the information that you don't need a generator, as we said, or sometimes you need more advanced use cases in which it's better to add uh, an agentic flow. So we see which use cases are reserved for the RAG architectures that we have right now. I think RAG with the vector database is going to disappear as soon as we have more advanced models. I totally agree. It also seems weird like, Thinking about your API example, I think that's a beautiful example. Like, and even Notion search. Like, if I have some information, someone asks me a question, you know, and I want to look it up, it's probably going to be a hard question, and it's going to be one where you might want to make an API request to Notion, but you might want to make twenty API requests, each one's with different keywords, right? You might want to say, someone asks, like, what's our vacation policy? So you might search holiday policy, vacation policy, time off. You know, let's look at you know whether recent people took off. Let's see what they did when they took off. You can ask twenty questions in parallel, look them all up, gather that information. That's way more interesting than just trying to see if there's some text in our wiki that matches the term vacation policy. Like, come on. Yeah, exactly. Because you need to base on the assumption that the query is semantically similar to the relevant text that you want to retrieve. So you need for sure some advanced query transformation at least. They are coming up with a lot of methods to rewrite your queries, improve it, extract the relevant metadata to filter. There is even one called the hypothetical document embeddings, I think, which is about you prompt LLM, uh, you try to generate a response, which is has an hypothetical structure. Let's say you want a, a recipe, a cooking recipe, and you get an hypothetical response with some cooking steps that are probably hallucinations, but you use it anyway for retrieving because maybe semantically more similar to something that resembles a recipe. So what you said has a lot of ways to get around this problem that the retrieval context must be semantically similar. But I think we can get around all this with uh, some agent workflows. Yeah, that's all is. Because I mean, I think what you're saying makes sense. It's just the element of like, if I am trying to do Q&A on a document, it might be that the question and the answer aren't semantically similar, but there are other ways to use semantic similarity here, right? Like if the contract has a clause that says like, you know, tenant must leave within 30 days, whatever, you know, you would just say like, if you could turn that into a question maybe, and then you search for similar questions, sure. I mean, there are ways to get around it, but I think it just assumes a lot. It assumes that what you're doing is search. That's basically the bit that I think is, what's sad here about RAG is how many RAG use cases are just search. And I think search is super boring. I don't know about you. I agree. And there's also another thing that uh, RAG cases are very vertical, meaning that you have to develop a very specific architecture and specific steps for your use case. So, for example, like we talked about code generation, there will be a RAG architecture for that. There would be another one for some of the summaries about conversation we said, and also another one about working on some personal project about RAG with WhatsApp chats, for example, that will be a totally different approach. Like you still have a vector DB and a retrieval process and stuff, but you have a different approach to query transformations to metadata, maybe different 
ways to re-rank. And every use case is very different in Rug. And I think this is, makes it very complicated to work with and cool to have something that generalizes a bit more. And I think, by the way, I was chatting, like Notion, one of their challenges here is just like different users have access to different documents. And I realized like, wait, this is true everywhere. Like Google, you know, users have access to different documents. Even then you have to build out infrastructure to make sure that you're searching over your documents, the ones you have access to. You might also want some other hierarchical ways to sort, which might be user. So I, I don't know. I also think like, have you played with the different frameworks for RAG? Like, yeah, I use Lama Index, I use Langchain, and I was mm, looking into Haystack recently. I was interested in their re-rankers. There are different approaches to re-ranking, basically. And then there's there's also all the vector databases. But it just seems to me like. I don't know about your thought here, but like it seems to me like they just don't solve the problem. Like it's nice, it's useful, it's cool util. Some of these can be pretty easily rewritten. But like, yeah, it's exactly what you said. If you want to focus on a vertical and you're trying to do code generation, like, yeah, you'll probably want a vector database, probably. I mean, pretty sure. You know, maybe not at some point, but maybe right now you do. But how do you store stuff? How do you organize it? How do you query? What are you querying for? How, you know. You're gonna have to figure that all out yourself. And that's all the hard work, which means like the vector database is at the point that you have a team big enough to solve this problem and get it working, you might as well rebuild the vector, not the vector database, but you might as well rebuild your llama index equivalent, right? Like maybe you do, maybe like it doesn't matter because it's just so small compared to the real work you're doing. Uh, th- there was a debate about that. Some of my colleagues were saying that they don't like Langchain because it provides a lot of abstractions. Sometimes you can just rewrite yourself. And I think that's true in certain use cases. Like my policy is that I try to avoid using some abstraction unless they really make me save some time and they're necessary or and or they're necessary. For example, one that I really like about Langchain is the output parser and basically can validate the output of LLMs. And it will be complicated to build it from scratch. So if I find some use case like that, I really like Langchain or some high-level libraries. But if I only need to import something, some LLMs or do some easy prompt engineering, I will do it myself. Are you talking about where you can like have a pedantic object that gets filled in by Langchain? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are two really cool classes that I like. One is the output parser that you said you can validate with different uh, outputs. You can validate like a JSON, a pedantic object or whatever. Another one is the structured query. That's also very, very nice. It's for RAG. It's basically you, let's say you ask, uh, what did I chat uh, with Mike on uh, the 21 of August about cars? And the structured query will be cars date equals 21 of August chat equals Mike. So, so it basically separates the query with the metadata. And there's another cool use case for Langchain that I will do. And others will be re-rankers from Haystack or or I like Lama Index because it connects a lot of connectors, like for RAG. For example, you can connect, uh, let's say, from Arxiv, like the repository of scientific papers. You have a class that just from Arxiv and just all abstracted. And yeah, you can do it yourself, but it will take a while to write from scratch a module that does that. So my point is that if I can save some time, I'm happy to use uh, one of these libraries. Otherwise, if I can write it from scratch, I, I will do it. Totally agree. It just seems to me also like you are talking about that like prototyping land where like when you're trying to build a prototype, you can get off the ground by stealing other people's ideas, which is amazing. It also seems like you were talking about like if you are trying to do some rag over WhatsApp, that's not a use case. Like you need to figure out what you're doing here. Like is your use case like automating responses? Because if so, your pipeline might look completely different. And once you have a use case, you know, you're not going to need to retrieve from archive. You know, like it depends what. But uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Anyway, this was a great conversation. So all in all, would you invest in rag companies? <laughs> that's a, that's a big question. I think rag is huge right now in this moment. I don't know if I would bet my money on it on the long term. 
that's probably I wouldn't do that on the long term, but we'll see. Like it's very unpredictable at the moment. I found it so funny how much people hated your article basically saying rag is going to disappear like why do people get so pissed off about that why are people so into rag uh yeah because uh, I, I, it turned out to be a, a little bit controversial because it's something that you i mean everyone is writing on rag and i also writing something on rag myself because it's useful right now but yeah like i guess reading that rag is going to disappear where everyone is saying that is the next big thing in the eye is probably shocking do you ever realize that we live in an echo chamber yeah, I think this really affects us, like our perspective in the internet. Like I open LinkedIn and I'm overwhelmed by articles on uh, on certain topics. And then I go through my day and I, I don't see it at all. So what you're exposed to, the information that you're exposed to, for sure influences your thoughts. Yeah. Awesome. Anyway, this has been great. Thanks so much for joining us, Donato. This has been Donato talking about retrieval augmented generation, the future of the field, agents, long context window models, etc. This has been awesome. Thanks so much. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're an ML enthusiast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or at hello at slingshot.xyz. We'll be back with more next week.